Jennifer. Would you open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 29 to continue our study through Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's on page 199. If you Bible, just have that ready. We'll be studying that in a minute. Just a reminder at 4 o'clock today is our uh, what we're calling the recognition service, where we're coming together to recognize uh, all the people who helped build this building. It's kind of the capstone to all of our grand opening that we had the last couple of weeks. So I'd love for you to come back today at, at 4 and just, you know, as a church, thanking people who really poured themselves out this last year to get us to this place of a new building and to kind of give honor where honor is due and to thank people. So we'll be doing that at 4. And uh, I'm going to give a brief history of the church. Pierre is going to sing. We're going to sing. Uh, and we're going to have uh, some of the contractors and guys who worked on the building who don't go to our church here. So it's a pretty cool opportunity for us to, to be a witness to them and to show them our appreciation as a church. So I hope you can come back today at 4. Because, you know, the Red Sox are, you know, dead in the water. So there's really nothing else to do anyway. So I encourage you to come and just... Uh, them. Patriots have no chance. All right, Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. You know, it's, it's great when you talk to Christians to ask them a question. If, if you want to really go to an interesting place with a Christian, here's the, the question to ask them. Uh, how did you come to know Jesus as your Savior? It's a great question that kind of gets you really connected to another Christian. You know, so often uh, our conversation can be sort of trivial and ephemeral. But, but when you ask a Christian, how did you come to know Jesus? It, it opens something up. There's real fellowship that happens. And, and by the way, I would just encourage you as, as a church family and as members of the church to feel free to ask that question of each other. Uh, you, you know, when you have those longer conversations you sometimes get with another church family member, and just like, how did you come to know Jesus? And it's interesting what you'll hear as, as you share about your spiritual journeys together. Anyway, uh, I, the reason I bring it up is I found over the years listening to people's narratives of how they came to faith in Christ and what brought them there, that, that there's often an affirmation and acceptance of the fact that there is a God, that the story somehow starts with there is a God and I knew that somehow. You know, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes the story starts. Uh, ever since I was five years old, I always knew there was a God. I somehow uh, sensed it. I, I just knew that the world kicked, didn't come from nowhere, but that there was a God who had made the world. And I always believed that even as a little kid. Or maybe the story starts this way. Um, you know, I was raised in a church. My parents took me to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school. I'd always grown up hearing the gospel and being taught the word of God. Or maybe it starts this way. Uh, you know, I was kind of a hellion growing up, but uh, I should be dead, and yet somehow I'm not. And I knew so many times there was someone watching out for me. You know, the time I rolled my car and I walked away without a scratch, I knew someone was looking out for me. I knew the man upstairs had his eye on me. You know, sometimes that's how it sounds. Um, but, but, but however the story goes, there's typically some kind of, yeah, I knew God was real. And then into the narrative comes the but. But, but... You know, I didn't follow after that God. I knew there was a God, but I kind of did my own thing, lived my own life, and didn't really seek Him out. I was raised in the church, and I heard 
uh, all the Bible stories. But when I got to college, I kind of went in a direction that wasn't what I had been taught. Or, or I, I just got busy trying to make money and raise a family and all that kind of thing. And I sort of forgot about everything I'd been told. I, I was a hellion and I got rescued from all kinds of situations where I probably shouldn't have survived. But I didn't really change my ways and I kept doing what I've always done. And there's always that, that but in the story. Why is the but always there? Why is it always, yeah, I knew, but... You know, it's just it's so consistent and persistent in our lives. If there ever was an example of people who knew God and should have known God, but turned away, it has to be the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Because never had there been a people in the history of the world who had such clear, strong, magnificent evidences of God's reality. And yet they, they turned away. And so in Israel's story, it's in some ways, I think, a kind of microcosm of the human spiritual narrative. That all of us come from different backgrounds, and yet there's this kind of common human narrative of awareness and a lack of actualization of the, the kind of people we should be in response to God. And so we come to Deuteronomy 29, and I just have to warn you, chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, we've been studying through Deuteronomy for the last year, so this is your first Sunday here. Uh, we're almost done with Deuteronomy. We're going to go to the Gospel of John next after the missions conference. But um, you know, De- this is a really this is a really depressing chapter in Deuteronomy. Let's just be honest. It's depressing. It's discouraging because here, basically, this is what Moses is telling the Israelites in Deuteronomy. He's like, "Look, God has done all these things for you, but I'm making a prediction. In the future, you're going to turn away from God and lose it as a nation." Basically, this is a prophecy of the future, where Moses is telling the Israelites, this is what God's done, this is what you're supposed to do, but you know what? Between all of us, we know it's not going to happen, and you're going to be destroyed as a nation. So there you go. It's a really depressing chapter, Uh, at least this chapter is. Let's look at the text. Look at all that Israel knew about God. You know, that they're the ultimate example of, I knew, but... Look at uh, verse uh, 2 of chapter 29. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reached this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out to fight against us, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So, yet again, for the umpteenth time in Deuteronomy, if you've been studying with us, we have yet another recital of God's past faithfulness to Israel. Once again, we're taken through all the events. And if ever there was a country that had seen God's power in work, at work, it was Israel. You know, from the Red Sea crossing, the plagues in Egypt... Forty years of wilderness wanderings where they had no grocery store, no crops, 
no food. It's just every day they'd walk out and God put manna on the ground and He brought water out of the rock and He supernaturally fed and watered the people for 40 years. And then they come to the edge of the promised land and, and, and what happens? They start getting attacked and God gives this ragtag group of shepherds victory over a highly militarized people through His power. You know, there's these incredible military upsets where Israel routs their enemies in a a victory, you know, as it were, of biblical proportions. And it happens again and again. I mean, if anybody should have known that God was real and that God could be trusted, look at the last 40 years, Moses is saying to Israel. But it's not just the past. You should know God is real, Israel, because look what He's doing right now. God is making a covenant with you. I mean, that's the whole point of the book of Deuteronomy, right? It's a reaffirmation of Israel's covenant with the Lord. And so in the present, not just the past, God is showing himself real. Look at verse 9. Here's the present called to a covenant. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing here in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives and the aliens living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God. A covenant the Lord is making with you this day, sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as His people, that He may be your God, as He promised you and as He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant with this oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in this presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. But God is real. Not just what He did and all the miracles, but like right now, Israel, God is right here. He wants you to be His people. And, and He's going to become your God. God can be known. God can be entered into in a relationship. God is not a nebulous force out in the universe, a, a sort of generic, mindless power of positivity. God is a person. God has a personality. God has a mind can be known and related to. If anyone should have known that God was real, it should have been these people. Not only that, but they also knew that the other gods of the nations weren't real. You know, look at verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 16. You yourselves know. Again, again, again. You should know. You know. You know. How we lived in Egypt. How we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw... Among them, their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from the Lord to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there's no root among you that produces such bitter poison. You know, I knew, but... Here it is. They knew from the past. They knew from the present. They knew by counterexample, by the foil of other nations and their gods. But, what happened? You know the history of Israel. They, they fell away. They broke God's covenant. And so this is where it gets really depressing. Verses 19 through 28, if you really want to be depressed. This is Moses predicting the future destruction of the people of Israel because he knows that they are going to break the covenant and turn away from the Lord. Um, in verses 19 to 21, he singles out individuals, basically saying there are going to be individuals in Israel that have turned away from God. 
And then in verses 22 through 28, he says, and eventually the whole nation is going to follow suit in God's judgment will come on the nation. And we look at the individuals, verse 19. When such a person hears the, the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe, even though I persist in going my own way. You know, God, God's being so good to Israel. I, I can kind of do what I want. I'll be fine. I'm sort of protected. I'm hiding among the herd here. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall on him and the Lord will blot his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster according to all the curses of the covenant written in the book of this law. You know, you you can't hide from God. You can't hide from God even in a crowd of godly people. But God sees us. You think, you know, if I hide among the sheep, I'll blend. But it's like if you're a giraffe, you can't hide among the sheep. It's obvious. And, and it's obvious to God. He knows who are his people and who aren't his people. He can see it. You know, so it, it, it's so tempting to think, like, well, my family's a church-going family. All, so many people in my family are Christians. I'll sort of hide, like, in those little kids' Where's Waldo books. You know, we got to look for 10 minutes, try to find... Like, it takes me 10 minutes. My kids find Waldo like that, but... I'm looking for Waldo. And we think, maybe I'll hide among, a, you know, a, a family. Maybe I'll hide in the youth group. Boy, what a youth group. We have a great, you know, youth leader like Pete who prays like that. And all these kids who are seeking the Lord. And, and so somehow I'll just kind of hide among them. But like you as a team, you have to individually follow the Lord. It's not, it's not kind of a, a herd thing. You, you have to choose to respond to the Lord. Or even, look, I'm in this new church, it's beautiful, all these people, this new building. Maybe I'll just sort of osmotically be blessed by being around people who are seeking the Lord. And certainly it's great to be among God's people, but you need to seek the Lord. God sees our hearts. I, you know, I don't know your heart, you don't know my heart. But God sees it all with perfect, infallible clarity. And so he, he calls individuals out. And he basically is saying to Israel, look, I know what's going to happen. There's going to be people among you who will turn away. And that brings my judgment and my curse. But then it gets even more depressing. Because in verses 22 through 28, we have this discouraging prediction that Israel will fall apart and worship other gods and come under judgment. Look at verse 22. Your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see, this is what's going to happen, they will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur, not planted, not, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his fierce anger. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than God saying, your country is going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, that's just as bad as it gets. And all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, here it is, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them. Gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. 
Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. That's a really discouraging prospect. I know you're going to worship other gods and then as we studied, if you were here last Sunday, we studied the blessings and the curses part of the covenant. If you keep the law, you're blessed. If you break the law, you're cursed. And so essentially what Moses is saying is, I know what's going to happen. You're going to break the law and eventually God's curse will come not just on individuals but on the whole nation. And as a matter of fact, we know that's what happened. About 800 years, plus or minus, after Moses spoke these words in Deuteronomy, uh, about eight centuries later, eventually God's people came to an end and they were sacked and sent into exile by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And that was the end of it. Such a, so much promise. They knew, but... In fact, you know, to take the depression to get a new low, look at chapter 31. God, get this, God commands Moses... To teach Israel a song. You know, here's the song. And the song is about how Israel is going to turn away from God and be judged someday. Like, how is that on the inauguration of this new nation going into the promised land? Where God's like, here's your national anthem. It's about how you're going to turn away from God and be judged. How do you like that? That's their national anthem. You know, couldn't it be something a little more encouraging? Something a little more triumphant? You know, look at chapter 31, verse uh, 16. The Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your fathers. You're about to, to die, Moses. And these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering. They will forsake me, break the covenant I made with them. On that day, I'll become angry with them and forsake them, and I'll hide my face from them. And they'll be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on that day, they will ask have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. So again, God predicts their apostasy and consequent judgment. Then get this, verse 19. Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it. So that it may be a witness for me against them. When I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land promised on oath. And so, they have to learn this song. Now, I'm not going to read the song, but look at chapter 32. That's the song. So, here's homework today, just, you know, to really uh, to get depressed in, in case, you know, the Red Sox <laughs> haven't depressed you all enough. Read the song straight. It's uh, Israel's national anthem that there will be apostasy followed by judgment in this long uh, Hebraic style second millennium B.C. style poem or song. And somehow it was put to music. Talk about singing the blues. This was a really discouraging moment for Israel. Why is it this way? Why is it that Israel, who knew so much about God, 
could so predictably collapse. Why is it that even though we know we, we don't follow through and turn to the Lord, people like us who have seen how many sunsets, who have looked up at the stars so many times, who have seen storms and seen the mountains and gone to the White Mountains in New Hampshire and stood on top of Mount Washington looking out over the creation. How can we, who so obviously have the evidences of God's great work in front of us, know and yet turn away? How could we have heard so many sermons? How could I have preached so many sermons? And again and again, drift away. Uh, how can we have coincidences in our lives? And in things where it's like, I know someone is watching out for me, kind of aha moments, and still not respond with love and worship and obedience to the Lord. How can that be? And we find the answer here in the text. The problem is within our own hearts. Look at 31, chapter 31, verse 21. There's that little line where God says, I know what they are disposed to do. The, the spiritual problem of the human race is that we have a, a problem with our disposition. With, with our fundamental, you might call it, spiritual orientation. It's not an orientation toward God. It's not an orientation to make Him first. I mean, we might believe in Him, but we don't want to believe in Him on His terms. We want to believe in Him on our terms in a way that works for our lives. And if it doesn't work, well, we can kind of pick and choose a cafeteria approach to God where we take a scoop of this and say no to that. Instead of saying He is the King and we love and worship Him. That's that, that brokenness, that disposition. You know, do human beings have free will? Of course we have free will. You're free to do whatever you want. But what do we want? We don't want God. So the will is free in one sense, but it's enslaved in another sense. Because it's enslaved to our twisted desires and disposition. It always acts on what we want to do. And what we want to do is not what God wants us to do. So yeah, we have free will, but it's so predictable the way we'll always use it. So in that sense, it's not free. Because we enslave it ourselves. Or look at chapter 29, verse 4. Look how Moses started this whole conversation. Deuteronomy 29.4. Remember this one? We read it. I kind of skipped over it, but let's go back to it now. Deuteronomy 29.4. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or ears, eyes that see, or ears that hear. Which is so ironic because in verses 2 and 3 he emphasizes everything they've seen. Verse 2, your eyes have seen all the Lord did. Verse 3, your, your eyes have seen those great trials. But then verse 4, you don't have eyes to see. Clearly he's talking about two different sets of eyes. One is the physical eyes that we actually literally see things in the world. But then there's another set of eyes that are far more important than physical eyes. The eyes of the heart. To see who, to understand and accept who God really is. And so basically what Moses is saying, like, look, to this day, God hasn't given you that. He just kind of let you be. Like, okay, here's the covenant. And you just be who you are, and let's see how it works. And it, it goes so badly because there's that problem. You know, the heart of the matter is that there's something the matter with our hearts. And when, when the Bible and, and theologians talk about 
being sinful or, have, or being depraved or having a sin nature. They're not just talking about the fact that sometimes I lie or sometimes I lose my temper. They're talking about the fact that my heart seeks self rather than God. That's the, the root of it. And it, it comes out in all kinds of crazy different ways. Sometimes in socially acceptable ways, sometimes in socially deviant ways. But it's the same kind of impulse where I fancy myself to be God and king and ruler, sovereign of my own life. That pride that Pete had mentioned in his prayer is so truly within us. So that even human beings who reach noble heights and do great things because we've been made in God's image, it always seems to get someone to get twisted or tainted or bent or ruined or soiled because of that impulse within. And so, it's really discouraging. Wow, my heart is bent. What can be done about that? And so it's predictable. Moses says, I can predict it. I'm making the covenant today, but I know because of what you're disposed to that you're going to break the covenant. And because the math of the covenant is if you break the covenant, you receive the curses, I know God is going to judge you. So Moses is kind of looking down the timeline of history saying, I know what's going to happen. I'm making the covenant today. You will break it consistently and eventually God will say enough's enough. And sure enough, that is the, the historical record of God's people under the old covenant. It was a record of sort of certain doom and falling apart. Not because God had failed to provide enough evidence, but because our spiritual hearts and minds are blind. So discouraging. What a depressing chapter. Thank God for chapter 30. Because in chapter 30, we have another prediction. That after the covenant is made, and after Israel falls apart, and after the curses come and God's people are judged, after all that takes place predictably, something completely unpredicted will happen. Unpredictable, I should say, because that's obviously being predicted. But something that you wouldn't expect. God is going to break a new covenant and a new blessing so that people have another chance to be restored to God and to know Him as their God. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you have come upon you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. So in the future, after Israel has been scattered to the four winds, and after God's people have been crushed, at that time, after all that happens, verse 2, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where He scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant lands under heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belongs to your fathers and you'll take possession of it. He'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So, way down the timeline, there's this, going to be this future phase Moses is telling him about here where God will restore a blessing to his people and will restore a new covenant relationship with his people. It's amazing that this is going to happen. And here he's telling Moses about it. But now here's the problem. Here's the problem. What is the condition 
for God's people in the future to receive this new blessing and this new covenant. The condition is in verse 2. When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul. But wait a minute. That's the problem. (laughs) That's how we got in the mess in the first place. Is that the heart and the soul wasn't in the right place. But in the future, a blessing will come when you turn to God with all your heart and with all your soul. But that's my problem. It's my heart. So this seems like this is another doom for failure, depressing announcement. But for verse 6, look at verse 6. Look what God's going to do. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. Yeah. Wonderful Jewish idiom. And the hearts of your descendants. So that, here's the result. You may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The most fundamental commandment of the Old Testament law was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now God's saying, in this new phase that's coming, it's kind of nebulous here in Deuteronomy, it gets clearer through the Old Testament, in this new phase, God is going to give you a new heart. Here the imagery is circumcising the heart, kind of taking away flesh so that the heart can be responsive. I, I, I sort of have the image in my mind of a, a person with earmuffs on, and they can't hear, you know, they've got their Bose headphones on, and they're, you know, the kid with the iPod, uh, you know, buds in his ear, and he can't hear you. And, and so you got to go up and pop those things out. Hey, I'm talking. And it's like God saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for you. I'm going to pop the earbuds out. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to take away whatever it is that's been blocking your receptivity to my message. The problem is in your heart, and I'm going to change the heart. This is the great news. Someday God is going to start changing hearts. And so, as you step away from Deuteronomy, kind of, push off from the shore and start flowing down the river of the Old Testament story and move through the Old Testament, you see these things happening, these two things. One, you see Israel continuing to fall apart and decline and eventually be destroyed. That's part of the Old Testament story. But the other part of the Old Testament story are these continued promises that grow stronger and more clear and more detailed that someday after the collapse, God is going to do this new thing. And and you get this picture of it. There's going to be a Messiah. There's going to be a new kingdom. There's going to be the forgiveness of sins. God's going to make a new people. Um, There's going to be a new covenant that's made. And God will give his people new hearts. That's all part of this future thing that, that as you move through the Old Testament, it starts getting clearer and clearer and clearer what God is going to do. Let me show you really quickly two Old Testament texts that you ought to know about, in which God talks about this future uh, blessing that includes a new heart. Look, first of all, at Jeremiah chapter 31. On page 784 in the Pew Bible, if you're using a Pew Bible, Jeremiah 31, page 784. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Here's a prophecy about this new phase, this future covenant that will include God changing the hearts of his people. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. 
In other words, like Deuteronomy, it's not going to be like that. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That covenant was broken. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So it's not going to be Moses coming down the mountain with two big stone tablets saying, hey, make sure you do this. It's going to be God supernaturally putting his law in our hearts, putting a disposition within his people to want to obey the law, fixing the heart problem. And then, of course, it goes on. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Forgiveness. Old Testament text number two, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, page 857-857 in the Pew Bible. Ezekiel 36, another prophecy about the future period that includes a transformation of the heart of God's people. Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God's going to make a new covenant with a new heart. An awesome promise. So, so as you, you trace this hope forward, it's that someday God will not only make a new covenant, but he'll make us the kind of people who can live in the covenant with him. And so finally you come to the New Testament. And Jesus comes. And all of those promises reach their zenith and fulfillment. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus makes the new covenant. You know, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus establishes the new covenant. Jesus establishes the kingdom of God. Jesus dies on the cross to forgive our sins. And he brings the Holy Spirit, which he pours out on the church, so that people's hearts are changed. So in the old covenant, you had God's people who by and large hearts weren't changed, although there was always a remnant chosen by faith. But in the new covenant, the defining mark of being in the new covenant with Christ is that your sins are forgiven and your heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the mark of being a new covenant member in the church. Old circumcision was the sign of the covenant under the old covenant. The circumcision of the heart is the sign of being in the covenant in the new covenant. That's what matters now, is, is having your heart changed. Let me just show you, this is our last text. It's a familiar one. John chapter 3, page 1051. John chapter 3, page 1051. Here's Jesus talking about the change of heart. It's a text you may have heard before, but perhaps in light of this Old Testament background, this text will take on new life for you. New uh, levels of aha. Look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. 
for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And here's where Jesus throws out this famous zinger. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. There's only one type of real Christian in the Bible, a born-again Christian. Like, what? What does that mean? Is that some kind of political party? Like, what is that? You say born-again Christian, and people go, ah! Well, rather than freaking out, let's listen to what Jesus meant. You know, I think it's always good to go back to him. What did he mean by that phrase? Well, Nicodemus wondered too, verse 4. Um, how can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. I'm pretty sure you're not literally talking about being born again, Jesus, right? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. That's Ezekiel 36 language. He's just pulling on Ezekiel 36. He's saying, I'm, I'm just talking about it. In fact, later on, in the, we'll get there, but later on in the text, he says to Nicodemus, you should know this. You're one of the teachers of Israel. Dude, Nicodemus, don't you know the Old Testament prophecies, man? You should know this was coming. And now it's here. You should understand this. What, what has been promised, the change of heart, is now coming to pass. That's what it means to be born again. So Jesus uses the phrase born again. You know, Ezekiel talks about getting a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Jeremiah talks about having the law in your hearts and minds. Moses talks about circumcising your heart. It's just the same thing. It's, it's different imagery to describe this amazing act of making someone new, giving them a new heart that is oriented toward God, what theologians call regeneration. But it's all just different words and images trying to describe a supernatural act of God in which he changes a person's heart to be disposed toward Christ and toward loving God in a way that we couldn't on our own. And it's an amazing gift. So, my friends, this is the message of Christianity, that God changes hearts. That's our whole hope. Sometimes I, I think people misperceive the message of Christianity. They, they misperceive, they think it's something more like this. Look, straighten up. Stop it. Whatever you're doing is bad. Stop it. You know, no more drinking, no more smoking, no more smiling. Um, you know, get to church, get it together, stop doing bad things, pull yourself together. You know, uh, just try to be a good person and try to do the good things. That's not the message. The message is God changes hearts. And he can change your heart, and he can change my heart, and he can make me someone different than I've been all these years as I've kept stepping in my own disasters and creating problems for myself. God can change my heart. The message of Christianity isn't, I knew there was a God, but I didn't follow him, but I eventually got it straight and turned my life around by following these six easy steps. That's not the message. It's, I knew, but I turned away from God. But God hunted me down and, you know, arrested me, changed me, forgave me, and I'm born again. And I can't explain it. Except that, I, you know, I once saw the world this way, and now I see the world this way. Once it was all about me, now it's all about Christ. 
something has changed inside of me, and I, I have my faith in the Lord now. And that happens. God changes hearts. That is so encouraging. What, I can't think of anything more encouraging to know that God changes hearts. That God can change your heart. Even those of us who have been burned out on religion. You know, man, you missed it. It's about knowing the Lord as He puts a new spirit within you. And no matter where you've been, and you're like, oh, I can't do this. I've tried all these times. Ah, church is, eh, it doesn't work for me. I'm just who I am. Like, God can change your heart. And so it's a matter of coming to Christ and not only saying, forgive my sins, but change me and make me a new person. And believing that God actually changes and saves people today. You know, that's so encouraging for us as Christians. I hope you're encouraged by that. Sometimes it can be discouraging as a Christian trying to live the Christian life, fumbling along. And I think we forget that it's all about the Christian life is a daily dependence upon the power of God to follow Him. A daily dependence on the Holy Spirit to enable us to obey and follow Him. And I always forget that. I always just think, well, I'm a Christian. Time to get up today and go to work. All right, see you, God. You know, like you're saying about your family. Going off to work. Going to go follow you today. I'll see you later. Uh, Instead of, God, I need you today. I need you every day to fill me up with your Holy Spirit so that by your power I will be enabled to live this life. Because if you don't do it through me, I'm not going to be able to do that. What an encouraging uh, word this is uh, for us as Christians as we just think about people we know and love who don't know the Lord. We're so concerned for them. And we've been praying for them so long and been trying every trick we know to tell them about Jesus that we've kind of given up. It's like, when, 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 is, when is anything going to happen? It's not going to happen. They're too stubborn. They're too this. They're too that. But if God changes hearts, there's always hope. You know, we just got to keep doing what we do. God will change the heart. I, I was thinking, it's like one of my favorite toys when I was a little kid, Jack in the Box. That was like, I just loved the Jack in the Box. It was, it was kind of terrifying, really. <laughs> not only because clowns are sort of inherently creepy, but... Um, but, you know, just turning that thing, you know, and you're kind of like, oh, it's going to happen, no, I didn't know, and then it pops up, you're like, ah, you know, boing. Like, that, that's what it's like when people get saved. Boing. It just happens. So, like, just keep turning the crank, people. Pray, pray, love, be a godly witness. Tell them about Jesus whenever you can. Whenever it's, you know, an, an open door. But just keep doing it. And in God's time, if God so chooses, boom! And, and God can change a life. Happens all the time. If we didn't believe God could change hearts, why in the world would we spend all that money to build this building? Why do we do that? If we don't believe that God has people on the South Shore that He wants to reach. Why would we ever talk about church planting? If we didn't believe that. If we just said, well, New England, all the statistics show... It's a really unreligious area. People are really closed. Okay. That's what the statistics show. What does God's Word say? Can God change hearts? If we didn't believe God could change hearts, why would we have a missions program? Why would we raise money to send to missionaries around the world? Why would we have conferences with things like those who were not told? You know, we'd just be like, wow, that's too far away. That's too big. Why would anyone believe? Because this is what God's been doing for the last 2,000 years. As the church went from you know, a hundred handful of disciples to the fastest growing you know, movement in the world. It, it's amazing. 
But it's not because the church is any well-oiled machine. It's because God is changing hearts and he's gathering his people through his word. Our staff, um, our church staff is reading a really good book. It's called Reverberation by a, uh, an author named Jonathan Lehman. And it's, it's basically a book about how God's word reverberates through the church and, and changes us and shapes us. And uh, I think some guys in the church are reading this too. I really encourage you to read this. If you're looking for like a good fall read, a uh, theological read, this is it's really simple, really accessible, plain language, but just good teaching on God's word. Anyway... Uh, Jonathan Lehman tells a story, and, and I'll end with a story, but it's a story about a guy named Richard Ilulu. It says, Richard Ilulu had no interest in actually reading the Bible. He was a Muslim, after all, and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. Still, he did figure out one way to put the Bible given to him by a Christian to good use. Its crackly thin pages were perfect for rolling joints and cigarettes. Richard said, papers for rolling our own cigarettes were expensive, so we would tear out pages from the Bibles and use them for rolling for our rolling papers. On one occasion in 1978, Richard tore a page from the Bible for rolling a joint, but ended up stuffing it into his pocket. That night, bored and unable to sleep, he pulled the page from the Bible from his pocket and read these words from Psalm 34:8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. For the next three weeks, he could not get the verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who had shared the gospel with him. One night, alone in his room, Richard prayed, Lord God, I want to taste you like this verse says. And that same evening, he accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. God changed his heart. Richard's Muslim family and community did not respond very well. At first, they expressed concern, then they displayed anger, and then he received death threats. Richard was the first convert in the community, so it felt like a grave threat to everyone. Local mosque leaders denounced him on the mosque's outdoor loudspeakers. His own father told him that he would rather see him dead. He had to spend every night at a different missionary's house because of the danger. Richard left for another community in Nigeria to attend Bible school. Once that was completed, he returned to his home community to pastor a church, a factory, and government workers who had migrated there. The death threat then resumed at a rapid clip as well as acts of vandalism. The police looked the other way. Richard eventually moved to the United States to protect his wife and children and to gain more Bible training. Lehman writes, I didn't know him at the time, but Richard and I were seminary classmates. And it all started with a Bible verse on a wadded up piece of paper dug out of his pocket. And I would add, and it all started when God decided to use that verse to change his heart. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is the best news we've heard all day. It's the best news we've heard all month. In a time when it seems like all the news is bad news. What good news that you can forgive sins and change hearts. God, would you be at work today? We pray that just as you said... At the beginning of creation, let there be light, and there was light. Lord, we pray that you would speak again and say, let there be light, and you would turn the lights on in our hearts. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand. Lord, give us hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone. Lord, make us be born again, put new power into our lives. 
so that we would have a fundamental disposition to love you and to love your Son and your Spirit. And so, Lord, be at work. I pray, Lord, for brothers and sisters here, for Christians, that they would go back to the well of living water, stop relying on their own efforts, and rely on Christ again. Lord, we love you. We thank you that with you there's always a new day and a second chance. We pray this